Welcome to Cross Lane Community Church, where we are committed to bringing people to Jesus. We hope you enjoy this online message. Well, if you're new to us, we are in a series. We started it last week, The Seven Churches of Revelation. Sounds ominous, doesn't it? It sounds like dooms and all that kind of stuff. How many of you watch a show called Undercover Boss? You ever seen Undercover Boss? Okay, now, how many of you would confess to crying at the viewing of Undercover Boss. Yeah, it breaks me down every time. I ball like a baby. <laughs> um, if, you, if you've never watched the show, the concept is this. A CEO or the owner of a company or a president of some company decides that he's going to leave the lofty palatial estate of his office and he's going to come down among the common people and he's going to go undercover. He's going to put a disguise on and he's going to work. He's going to go work under one of his managers. Um, And I've seen this done with different companies. Like um, they did it with a water treatment company. They did it with an HVAC company. They did it with a a, a distribution plant. They did it with a customer service guy. They did it with a a, a company that basically was a a network of horse racing tracks and and casinos and entertainment industry. And, And the... The premise is that this guy leaves his office, he leaves you know, the, the, his normal work, and he subjects himself to the people that he has working for him, uh, managers and, and uh, different ones in different places, and they try to teach him about their job. Uh, you know, my, uh, you know, he's going to teach this guy how to operate the cash register, they're going to teach this guy how to make a burrito, or they're going to teach this guy how to change out a filter in some water treatment thing, you know, all these different things. And what you figure out pretty quick is that the CEO has no clue what he's doing. And, you know, they may pay him millions and millions of dollars to run the company, but when it comes to the brass tax of how to really make the company work and, and really making things happen, this guy has not a clue how to do it. And, and so usually at the end of the show, there's some kind of reveal where they they take these people that this boss has kind of gone out and he's worked under these people and they, under some, you know, guys, they bring them back to headquarters and they're sitting in headquarters waiting for, they're not even really sure what they're there for. And through the door walks this guy or this gal in a suit, in a business suit, you know, and there's this moment where they realize, oh my goodness, that's the guy that I was trying to teach how to make a burrito. Or that's the guy I was trying to teach how to run the cash register and I, I called him a name. You know? And they, they realize that, that there's this moment that they have been training someone who is their superior, who's really the, the head of the company, is the boss. And, and they realize that somebody really important has been watching them. The boss of the company's been observing your work. You've been careful or you've been careless. You've, you've treated your employees well or you, you haven't. You treated the product well or you didn't. You were faithful, you were consistent, you were devoted, or you weren't. And the boss saw it all. The guy that actually runs the place has been watching you. I want you to think about that. As I read from Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars 
in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. And then you get to these four words, and these four words should shock you. I know your deeds. He says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Each lampstand represented one of the congregations. And here Jesus identifies himself as the one who walks among the lampstands, but the lampstands are figurative language for the congregation. So Jesus is walking around the congregations. He's walking among the churches. I don't know about you, but that's kind of an ominous thought for me. And it's as if Jesus is saying, by the way, I sit in your boardrooms. I sit in your elders' meetings. I've seen the way you serve each other. I've heard the conversations that you have in the parking lot. I see the seasons when you serve one another and the seasons when you fail to serve one another. I, see, I sit in your worship services. I see the gifts that you give. I listen to your words of encouragement and I hear you gossip. I walk among the lampstands. And then these four ominous words, I know your deeds. I know what you're doing. I want to take uh, 60 seconds and just give you a tour of the city of Ephesus. You're looking at the, the uh, um, auditorium. It seated 26,000 people. The next thing you're going to see is the Celsus Library. And then you're going to see the three arches that lead out. Through those three arches, you would go out to what they called the Agora, the marketplace. And literally, when you walked through those three arches into the Agora, in Ephesus, you could have bought anything that your heart desired. And I mean anything. You could have bought spices from Asia. You could have bought cosmetics from Egypt. You could have bought the latest fashions from Rome. Because Ephesus dominated the trade along the Aegean coastline. In the first century, Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the known world behind Rome, behind Alexandria, and behind a place called Antioch, which was in Syria. On our scale today, if you're trying to figure out a city that would have been like Ephesus, think of Hong Kong, think of Los Angeles, big metropolitan city, port city, a lot of trade going on. And one of the things that would have existed in the, in the city of Ephesus was the temple of Artemis. It would have been um, declared one of the seven wonders of the ancient world alongside the, the uh, pyramids of Egypt and the hanging gardens of Babylon. This was a couple of miles outside of Ephesus. The footprint of this building was over a football field in length and width. It was huge. Its pillars were 60 feet high, and that's before you got to any kind of um, uh, roof system. This whole thing was made out of marble. It literally, probably by the time it was completed, was the largest building known to man. Welcome to Ephesus. And the reason that I show you the 26,000 theater, and the reason I show you the library and the Agora and the Temple of Artemis is to make the point that when I talk about the church at Ephesus, I'm not talking about a three-goat town, okay? I'm not talking about some place where nobody knows anything. The people who became Christ followers in Ephesus were people who were engineers. They were mathematicians. They were slaves. They were slave owners. They were engineers. They were retailers. They were wholesalers. They were shop owners, So the question here is, what 
is Christ going to write to the church at Ephesus? To the church at Ephesus write, I know your deeds. And I'll tell you, some of what he has to say to them is really, really good. Some of what he has to say to the church at Ephesus is really not very good. They had also let go of some very significant things to their spirituality, and Jesus is going to bring a correction, and he's going to bring a rebuke. And he's going to say, we've got to straighten this out. And as we look at this letter today, I want us to see if there's anything for Cross Lane, if there's anything that we can use, if there's anything we can glean from what they might have heard Jesus say to them. There's a good news part, there's a bad news part. We're going to get to the bad news a little later. Um, We're going to learn of the damaging effects of what happens when a faith grows old and a faith grows cold. And I'm not talking about Um, those of you who are here and maybe are exploring Christianity, we have several who come to Cross Lane who aren't really sure about Jesus and and they're just kind of asking questions and they're just trying to feel their way through and see if there's something, if it's something that they're interested in. And quite honestly, we're just trying to be a place that does that for you without putting a lot of pressure on you. We don't want you to feel any pressure. But I'm not really talking to you in this particular thing today. And I'm not really talking to the ones who've become Christians lately because your faith probably is fairly new. It's probably fairly vibrant. What I'm talking to are the people who are maybe in their second and third generation of being a Christian, maybe their second or third decade. What happens when faith grows old? Do you ever wake up one morning and discover that the faith you have is not a faith worth having? And as we look at what's written to this congregation, we're going to see some really powerful things. Let's start with the good news. This this church in Ephesus gets praised for some things. Verse 2, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. He's going to use that phrase a couple of times. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. He uses the word perseverance twice. I know your perseverance. I know your hard work. I know that you have not grown weary. When you think of the church at Ephesus, the word that I would like for you to have in your mind as you think of this church at Ephesus is the word endurance. Endurance. You ever heard of this guy? That's Cal Ripken Jr. He's one of my heroes growing up. Uh, he's a, he was a shortstop for the Baltimore Orioles. His claim to fame is he came to be known as the Iron Man. Uh, he played in over 2,600 consecutive major league baseball games. Now, that might not sound a lot like a lot to you. Uh, just let me put that in perspective for you. He played shortstop, which is a very demanding position on the field. He was involved in a lot of plays. He's almost like the captain on the field. Um, They play a brutal 162-game schedule. They play almost every single day. People say, you know, I'd love to be paid to play baseball. I would too. I'm with you on that. But I, I do have enough respect for these guys to understand that it's not easy what they do. They travel to new cities. They live out of suitcases. They play a very demanding sport among the best players in the world. Um, there's a little bit of danger involved when people are throwing 95-mile-an-hour fastballs at your head. I mean, you can't get hurt playing this game, okay? And this guy suited up every single day for 2,600 consecutive games, and he never missed. And they called him the Iron Man. What that means is that over the course of 17 seasons, in suiting up every single day, it means that he played when he was hurt and didn't feel like playing. 
It meant he played when he didn't feel the best in the world and he just didn't want to play. That is perseverance. That's endurance. That's sticking with something for a long period of time. I doubt many of you will recognize this next guy, but I want to show you a picture. His name is Dean Carnazes. He is known as the Ultra Marathon Man. He's written a book by that title. Ultra marathons are a little different than a regular marathon. Um, the ones he writes about are 100 miles long. Okay. Now, I know that there are some of you sick people in here who run marathons. And quite honestly, I think we should have your head examined because I don't understand that. I mean, there's not a bear chase in you, is there? There's not a pizza at the end of it or anything like that. And you would run 20, what is it, 26.8 miles or something, 28.6 miles, something like that. What is it? 26.2. 26.2 miles. Okay, so here's a thought that I doubt any of you that have ever run a marathon, here's a thought that I doubt you've ever had. You cross the finish line and you think to yourself, I want to run three more of those right now would be great. You know, I doubt seriously that that's ever crossed your mind if you've run a marathon, but that's what goes through his mind. He runs a hundred miles at a time, not on pavement. He's in the mountains. He's going on trails. He's racing other people. He's an endurance runner. He runs when he feels hurt. He runs when he doesn't feel like it. He runs when it's unpleasant to run. It's endurance. It's perseverance. It's sticking with something for a really long time. My mom and dad winter in uh, Florida. They winter in a little town called Lake Wales, Florida. They were here last week. It was good to have them here. And uh, I try to get down to see them at least once every year. Um, Usually in January, I'll try to do that. Don't you think that's strategic to go to Florida in January? It's pretty good on my part, right? And um, whenever I go down, one of the things that we'll do is, is uh, my dad took me a couple years ago, he took me to something called the flywheel. Anybody that lives in Florida or has been to Florida that knows what the flywheel is? Anybody. Amazing. Nobody knows. It is like the, it's like the biggest flea market you've ever seen in your life. Everybody's driving around on golf carts at this thing. And my dad gets me up with the chickens to take me to this flea market, okay? So we get up, we're driving out of town, and we go by the, the orange groves that they have in, in Lake Wales. They've got these huge orange groves. There's a major uh, orange juice processing plant there. And you drive out, and, you know, like maybe you'd be going to the beach, or you, you might be going to the mall, or you'd be going to the flywheel flea market or whatever. And you drive out of town, and you go by the, the orange groves, and you see row after row it just it's it's mind-boggling how far these rows of orange trees go and there are workers and they have these backpacks on their back these specialized backpacks and they're they're picking these oranges and they're throwing them in the backpack and and you you you'd leave and you're on your way to do something fun and you think man it would really be awful to be one of those guys and have to do that all day long And you go and you do whatever it is that you do and you have fun and you come back and then later that day you drive by, you're on the way home and you go by this orange grove and there's those dudes picking oranges, throwing them in those backpacks and you think to yourself, oh my goodness, they've been doing that all day, all day. And that's when you just want to roll your window down and yell out the window at one of them, it stinks being you. And anybody that's going to do that, people who work like that, work when they don't feel like it. 
endurance. It's playing when you don't feel like playing. It's running when you don't feel like running. It's, it's, it's working when you don't feel like working. And I would submit to you that any healthy church, one that has been healthy longer than a couple of months or a couple of years, and I would submit to you that we are a healthy church, any church that has a lengthy run of good health, I guarantee you there's a core group of people who are per, uh, persevering and enduring and are doing what it takes to make things happen. People who play when they don't feel like playing, who run when they don't feel like running, and work when they don't feel like working. People who say, I'm going to be dedicated, I'm going to push through, I'm going to be devoted to this. This is the church at Ephesus, and they're praised for it. Verse 3, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. You say, Brett, what did they persevere in? Well, it's interesting. One of the things you see is this phrase. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. And he says this, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. He's not talking about wickedness like in worldly wickedness. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about in the church See, you couldn't be mean-spirited in the church at Ephesus. They wouldn't let you get away with that. You couldn't couldn't gossip in the church at Ephesus. They would get you for that. You couldn't talk about people. It seems that this congregation in Ephesus was willing to have the hard conversations with people, to help people. They were willing to play when they didn't feel like playing and run when they didn't feel like running, work when they didn't feel like working. They just kept at it. The church at Ephesus is praised for their endurance. There's a second part of that verse where they're praised. It says that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. And you say, well, what's up with that? The New Testament has not been really written yet. It's still being compiled. The, the book of Revelation is being spoken. It hadn't been put together or bound yet. And so uh, there was an ability for someone in the church to basically walk into Ephesus and say, I'm a spiritual leader. I come from Jerusalem, I have their sanction, I have new truths about God and Jesus, and I have some things that you've never heard before. And the guy could basically start out teaching, and if you weren't careful, he could lead you astray. He could teach you things that weren't true. He could be a false teacher. And so the leaders in the church at Ephesus would say, could you just hang on for a second, because we've got some guys down in Miletus about 20 miles away, We've got some church leaders down there. We're going to have them come up and basically see if you're sanctioned to teach us and see if it's okay. And we're going to send word to them, and they're going to come and, and let us know about you. And, and these guys come up from Miletus, and they, they see this guy that they've got among them, and they say, oh, no, 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 no. He can't teach you. Not only does he not have our sanction, but we had to censure him. We had to tell him to be silent because what he was teaching was uh, not true. And so basically the people at Ephesus would look at someone like that and say, look, you're not going to teach here. We're not going to let you teach us false doctrine. We're just not going to do that. It says that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. This took work. This is not easy. Your elders do this from time to time. They have conversations that are not easy conversations to have. They, there, there are times that they, they know they're going to talk to somebody about something and it keeps them up at night. And they have those conversations to to protect the greater good and to protect the church. 
And cults were already growing up in, Je- in the Jesus movement. It was just the second generation, but there was already a problem with that. And then you look down in verse 6 and it says, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. These guys had come in, and, and it wasn't just their teaching, it was also their behavior. And so if you had to listen to the heartbeat of the church at Ephesus, what you would hear was, truth matters, theology matters. That's what you would hear out of the church at Ephesus. And you hear that and you go, theology, who wants to think about theology? Theology is boring. No. The word theology, theos, logos, literally means a discussion about God. When you talk about theology, you simply ask the question, what is God like? Is he good? Is he loving? Can he be trusted? A good discussion of theology is a discussion of God, and theology matters. Can the Bible be trusted? Is it from God? Is it the Word of God? Theology matters. This guy Jesus, was he just a teacher, or was he God in human form? Did he actually do miracles, or were those all fables? Did he really raise from the dead, or does the cruci- or, you know, what does the crucifixion mean? We don't know. It's, you know. People that are having those conversations would say, you know, I don't know what the crucifixion means. It's, it's okay to have a discussion about God. You, know, you might ask questions, is, 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 are people basically good or could it be that we're all messed up and we need Jesus very badly? Theology matters. What about the theology of rescue? Jesus on the cross. What if God was reaching down to us when we could not reach up to him? What if the act of death was actually an act of life? What if grace is something God gives when you can't earn God? Theology matters. And if you were to put a stethoscope up to the heart of the Ephesian church and listen to it, you would have heard it. Truth matters. Theology matters. We devoted ourselves to separating spiritual fact from fiction. And if this is undercover boss, the boss comes in and he sits across from the church at Ephesus and he basically says, I need to praise you for some things. I need to praise you for your perseverance and for your endurance. And you say, great, everything's going great. And then he would say, ah, not so fast. Not so fast. The other shoe is about to drop. And we're about to be exposed to something that they lost. We, we are about to be exposed to what can happen when faith grows old and faith grows cold. Verse 4, yet I hold this against you. Jesus is saying this to the church at Ephesus. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Jesus says, we've got a problem here. You have forsaken your first love. What kind of love is Jesus talking about here? Is it like the, the, the love that we get from God or is it like the love for people sitting in the pew down from us? Is it God love or is it people love? I, I think it's both. I think that the two are connected and I think the two should never be disconnected. I think when it says here that they've lost their first love, what they've lost, what they've forsaken was the knowledge that they were deeply loved and treasured by the Creator. And They'd lost it in a way that it had no longer infused them to love the people around them. They lost a way to receive God's love, and in turn, it caused them to lose a way to extend God's love to other people. Paul visited Ephesus in something like 53 AD, 
This is sometime before the Revelation uh, scriptures that we're reading today were written, and, and he writes a letter back to him. He establishes this church in 53 AD, and then he, he's going to leave there, and he's going to go, and he's going to write a letter back to this church at Ephesus. It, it comes to be known as the book of Ephesians in our New Testament. And when you open the book of Ephesians, you come across the imagery of adoption. That's significant because the Roman culture was a culture of abandonment. It's important that you understand that. In Roman culture, a baby is born, a newborn, and it's brought and it's set before the father's feet. If he wants the baby, the father will pick it up and he will take it home. If he doesn't want the baby, he turns around and walks away, and at that point, the baby would be exposed to the elements they literally called it exposure. You would have a servant take the baby at night and leave it in the agora in the, in the marketplace or maybe on the garbage heap just outside the city gate. And the dad could for any reason do this. He wanted a girl, it was a boy. He wanted a boy and it was a girl. He looked down and he saw some birth defect or he saw some blemish on its skin or a freckle. Maybe it was a... a, a a premature baby, and he looked at it as a runt and decided he didn't want to take the responsibility of raising that child. For whatever reason, he could turn his back and he could walk away. Ephesus was an abandonment culture. You could walk through the city at night and you would hear the tiny cries of babies on the garbage heap that had been left because no one wanted to take care of them. And people would come and pick through the babies and they would often take them home and raise them as prostitutes or slaves for their own profit. This is the culture into which Ephesus was trying to grow a church. In the second century, there was a well-known physician in Ephesus. He wrote a medical treatment called How to Identify an Infant Worth Raising. And he told you how to measure the limbs. And he told you how to feel the joints in the body to see if it was a child that would be able to grow up strong so that you would have a good, healthy slave or a good, healthy prostitute. Ephesus was an abandonment culture. Kids were picked from the garbage heap, raised in homes, and sold as slaves. And you wonder if at some point these kids that had been taken off the garbage heap if they were ever walking through Ephesus and they saw someone that they thought looked like someone that they knew or if they maybe saw a man and thought, you know, he looks like me. I wonder if that's my dad. And in this culture, Paul would write in Ephesians 1, the God of creation has adopted you. It is the most unbelievable thought that your most defining moment in life is not who threw you out, but who took you in. When Paul talks about being adopted, he's saying he picked you out. He picked you up and he brought you home. It means for the person who has come to know Jesus, your most defining moment in life isn't who rejected you, it is who accepted you. You are not most defined by who dumped you, you are most defined by who brought you in. And the people of Ephesus knew that, and it had moved them and captured them when they discovered that they were the treasured sons and cherished daughters of God Almighty. 
It is why in Ephesians we would read, Ephesians chapter 5 says this, Follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul's saying receive it and give it as dearly loved children, as adopted kids. Just as Jesus loved you and hung on a cross for you, it is the love that is received and is a love that is given. Here's the question, what happens when you lose that? What happens when you lose sight of the fact that I am dearly loved by God? I'll tell you what happens. You do not love well. You do not pass on love because you're not receiving love and you're not passing love on. When Jesus is speaking to the church at Ephesus, he says, I have this against you. You have lost your first love. What happens when you lose your first love? Let me ask you this question. Has there been a day in your past when maybe you've walked into this room or when we were in the old building, you walked in and Kyle and the band were singing Amazing Grace? And as you stood there singing Amazing Grace, you realized, I'm cold. I'm no longer moved by these lyrics. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That doesn't move me anymore. I've just become cold. That there was a time that you used to sing Amazing Grace and you couldn't sing Amazing Grace that you didn't tear up and cry at the very thought that God loved you so much that he would send Jesus to die for you, and then one day you're singing Amazing Grace, and you realize, I'm not moved at all. This is cold. And it does nothing to you. It's old. It's stale. It's dusty. What do you do when you discover one day that you've lost your first love? When you're no longer overwhelmed by the fact that God loves you and it does not empower you to serve others. When you're no longer overwhelmed by the fact that God loves you so much he would be willing to die for you and that that would drive you to serve and to love other people. Was there a season where the spiritual fire burned really, really bright and really, really hot for you? And right now, if you're honest, the fire has almost gone out. And Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, your theology, (laughs) your theology is great. Truth and theology matter to you. That's great. But I've got a problem here. You've lost your first love. Do you realize how much I love you? And you've lost that. And the effect of that is you're not loving other people. Was there a time in your past when you felt so filled with God that you thought you were going to burst? That the idea of gossiping about somebody else literally made you sick? That you couldn't stand the thought that you would say something about somebody else or that you would mistreat somebody else? How can you be filled with the love of God and not live a life of grace? What do you do when you wake up and realize you have a faith that's not worth having? Jesus gives us two words. He gave the church at Ephesus two words. Remember and repent. Remember and repent. Consider, verse 5, consider, another way to just say remember, how far you have fallen. 
He says, remember the old days. Remember when you were so filled with God's love. And then he says, repent and do the things that you did at first. Repent's an interesting word. Repent is to literally be driving in one direction and to turn around and drive another direction. I've literally been with some of you when you repented literally, right? You turn right in the middle of the street, go the other direction. It's a change of mind. It's a change of heart and activity. Repent and do the things that you did at first. It's interesting because I would think he would say, repent and feel the things that you used to feel. That's not what he says. He's saying, remember when you were so filled with God's love that it seized you to do things? Remember that? He says, repent and do what you did at first. It's like he's saying, emotions will follow actions. One of the the terms that I teach whenever I'm talking to people trying to help them get their life figured out or straightened out or whatever I'll use a phrase called praxis, praxis. And and I've heard praxis defined different ways. Here's how I define praxis. Praxis is um, when your head finally catches up to your body. Let me me illustrate that for you. Um, I get up fairly early on a Sunday morning. Um, I love coming to church. I love being with you. I love preaching. I love you. I love to talk with you and to share love with you and I just love everything about Sundays. But once in a while, I'll wake up very early on a Sunday morning, and it might be raining outside. You know, that chilly, cool kind of rain. It's cold out. It's drizzly. It's November, and nobody wants to get out in that mess. You know what I'm talking about? And the bed's nice and snugly warm. And I could stand a couple more hours sleep. And I think to myself, no, they kind of expect me to be there this morning. Kind of expect me to have something to say. And so even though I might not feel like it, I'll drag myself out of bed and I'll get myself together and I'll come over and go through my routine and get ready to, to do what we do every Sunday and to love you and teach you and pray with you and just walk with you through the day. An amazing thing happens every time I do that. Every time I do that. I may wake up not in a great mood. I may wake up thinking to myself, you know, if I could press the button that said I didn't have to do this today, I would press the button today. By the time I leave, my head has caught up with my body. And my head is saying, I'm really glad I went to church today. I'm really glad I got to be with the people I love today. I'm really glad that I, I, I got to worship. I'm, glad I, I'm just glad I did that. Remember when you used to set your alarm clock and you would get up and pray? Remember when you would set your alarm clock and get up and read your Bible and, and it was the best part of your day and you would go through your day and everything went great and, and, and now all of a sudden you don't do that anymore and you're, you're left wondering why? Remember when you used to intentionally start your day with prayer and scripture and remember when you were were very intentional about your relationship with Jesus Jesus says consider how far you have fallen turn around do the things that you did at first don't wait to feel often emotions follow actions and you say okay Brett they've lost their first love is it really that big a deal I mean really honestly is that big a deal yes it is 
If you're looking at Scripture and you're looking at verse 5, it's a pretty big deal. Verse 5, the second part. If you do not repent, this is Jesus talking to the church at Ephesus, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. What he's saying is if this doesn't change, the light is going to go out on you as a congregation. If this doesn't change, you're going to lose your influence in the community. If you don't get your first love back, it's going to be lethal. But Jesus, we've got great theology. We've got great doctrine. We represent you. And Jesus would say, no, you don't. In John chapter 13, just before Jesus dies, he says this to his disciples. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And there it is. Love one another as I have loved you. And he doesn't say, and by this, by, by the way that everyone will know you're my disciples is that you will have great doctrine. He doesn't say that. I, I know there's people that wish that's what he'd said, but that's not what he said. He says, this will be the distinguishing mark of Jesus' followers. They will have love one for another. And if you lose this, it's lethal to what Jesus is about. And you think, man, this passage ends with a threat. No. This passage actually ends with a reward. Verse 7. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In the series Undercover Boss, at the end of the show, the final scene usually isn't the, the boss coming in and saying, hey, by the way, I'm the president of the company, and then roll the credits. That's usually not how it ends. So at some point, the president comes in, and there's a reward section. There's usually some section where this, this president or CEO has worked side by side with this, um, this person of little importance is really the best way to put it. And in in working side by side with that person, he's been able to hear a little bit of his life story. And he might find out that he has kids that he's struggling to put through college. Or he might find out that that he and his wife haven't been able to take their kids on a vacation forever. Or he might find out that this guy needs more education to do his job, but he can't afford it. And and there might be any number of things that this guy might need. But there's some point in Undercover Boss where the, the, the boss looks at the worker and says, I have something that I want to do for you. You know, I understand that you and your wife have not taken your kids on vacation in 10 years. The company is going to pay for you to have a vacation to Disney. You know, and the the guy breaks down and cries, and that's usually when I lose it, you know, because I love that kind of stuff. Or you've got two kids, and I know you're struggling to put them through college, but the company is going to give you five or $10,000 scholarships for each of them so that they can go to college, and the guy just breaks down. There's usually some reward. I think what Jesus would say to us is, what I'm offering you is better than a vacation. What I'm offering you is better than a scholarship. He challenges them to retrieve what they had lost, and that's kind of how I want to end today. Remember how far you've fallen. Remember what your faith was like when it was new, and it was fresh, and it was alive. Remember how it spurned you on to good things. Remember how you loved, how you served. 
get back to that? What did you do to have that? Were you reading the Bible every day? Were you praying more? What was it that you were doing that you had this vibrant, alive faith? You need to get back to it. A faith that is old and stale can be a lethal, lethal thing. So this morning, it's not really so much that I'm going to offer an invitation him. It's, it's not that as much as it is that I just want to take a few minutes and pray with you. And I just want us to go back to when our faith was brand new. And I want to ask God to just come in and help us to recapture that so that we can be the people that he wants us to be and do the things that he wants us to do. So would you pray with me? Father, there's not a one of us in here who stands outside of the need for your grace and forgiveness. Lord, we're a mess. And there's not a one of us in here who gets it right all the time. I'm pretty sure that when we took communion earlier, everybody had stuff they'd really rather not have to talk about. Father, your grace is so overwhelming and it's so powerful and it changes us. Your love is what we use to love other people. We really can't love other people unless we're taking your love first to do it. And Father, it stands to reason that if we've lost sight of that, and if it's, it stands to reason that if we are not fully cognizant of your love for us and how deep and rich and powerful it is, then we probably are not loving the people around us the way we need to. And Lord, the confession among many of us in the room this morning could quite possibly be, Father, I have lost my first love and I want to get it back. So Lord, it's going to be different for everybody in the room. Only you know how to draw them back to you and I pray that you would begin to do that. And I pray that a faith that was once vibrant and alive would be made that again. Father, we do not deserve your attention. We do not deserve your grace, your love. We don't deserve any of it. But we are captivated by you. And in these moments, we tell you that we love you. And we want to return to our first love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.